And all the people said, Amen. All of the music has focused on the worthiness and the holiness of God. Please turn in 1 Samuel to chapter 24. God is interested in you, though he is a holy and a transcendent God. He is interested in you and your spiritual battles. And one of the spiritual battles in which he takes great interest is the battle of frustration. Not discouragement, not fear, but frustration. It is what the psalmist called wit's end corner. When there doesn't seem to be any answer to your situation. You might have two choices equally good, two choices equally bad, or no choices. Frustration. What do you do? Does God care? Does God have an answer? Well, the Bible has some very interesting stories. Throughout the hundreds of years that the scriptures cover, the stories of godly men and women and how they dealt with life and how God dealt with them lay down for us examples of how God wants to deal with us. God is revealed propositionally in speaking precepts, but he's also revealed propositionally in the inspired narratives of how he dealt with men and women in difficult situations. Look at chapter 24, beginning in verse 8. Here's one, King David, 1 Samuel 24, 8. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave, the cave at En Gedi, when Saul was chasing him to kill him. And he called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Why listen to those aids? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave, and someone, David's men, urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Better be careful what you do or say about a God called man or woman. Amen? He is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see. Look, Saul, see the corner of your robe in my hand. David had hidden in the cave, and here Saul came into the cave to take care of some personal business, if you read the early text in this chapter. And uh, David was so close to Saul that he cut off a piece of his robe. And he said to Saul, look, I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my mind, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you, as the Proverbs of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. What I do will reveal what I am. Ancient proverb, and I will not kill you. I mean you no harm. After whom, verse 14, has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? 
a flea, therefore let the Lord judge be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. And Saul, in verse 16, said, Is that you, David? Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. But nothing changed. And David remained in the dilemma of an evil man whose heart had turned from God and it seemed he had nowhere to go. If he did evil to Saul, Saul hunted him. If he did good to Saul, Saul hunted him. Even when he returned good for evil, Saul hunted him and aimed for his life. How many times have you and I been in a situation like that? You're condemned if you do, and you're condemned if you don't. You're in a marriage. If, you did, if you're good to your wife, she says, what do you want out of me? If you're harsh on her, you say, you're acting just the way you always did, just like your dad. You can't do anything right. Sometimes it's that way in an employment situation, in a job. Sometimes it's that way with a child and trying to rear a child. If you're good to the child, they take advantage of you. If you're hard on the child, they complain about how mean you are. There's no way out, no way out, nowhere to turn, no answer, no solution. I call that frustration. Dictionary describes it as being thwarted, having all choices removed. Shirley and I were driving several weeks ago up to the Sandy Cove Bible Conference on I-95. It's called the NASCAR 1000. You ever driven up there through the corridor? Oh, it is a zoo. And here's this lady driving 58 miles an hour, 45 zone, 58 miles an hour, 65 zone, 58 miles an hour, 55 zone, 58 miles an hour. Never changes. So here I am stuck behind her. Five cars in a long line on this side. I can't go forward. I can't go to the right. I can't go to the left. That's the median strip. I'm stuck. I'll tell you, the devil can have a heyday with you on the highway. Amen? <laughs> How many of you acknowledge that is one of your weakest points? Yeah. You're there where you can't go anywhere. That's frustration. There's nowhere to go. One of my most memorable, frustrating times is a time that William Mosley always likes to remind me about. Our second daughter, Amy, was eight years old. We were in the driveway, ready to come to church on Easter Sunday, and we were all dressed. I was so proud of ourselves. The kids all had their Bibles. They had all their envelopes that day to bring to Sunday school, to bring their offering. I had every hair in place. I borrowed some of Shirley's hairspray. Not a thing was out of place. I'd had just the right amount of cologne on. I felt cool. It was a warming day, bright, sunny day. We all got in the car. I started the car, turned on the air conditioning, and Amy leaned over the back seat, four kids in the back seat, and she said, Daddy, what are we going to do about the little chickens? I said, what do you mean, what are we going to do about the little Somebody had given her, it was either two or three little chicks, she said, well, I knew this was Easter and we would be uh, gone a long time today. And so I let them out for some exercise. 
You can tell she wasn't raised on a farm. And I said, uh, being the uh, great dad that I thought I was, I said, that's no problem. I can handle three little chicks. Amen. That's a simple problem. I'll just leave the motor running, leave the air conditioning on. Y'all stay here in a cool car, and the great white father will take care of everything. And I went to do battle with those three little chicks. I found them in the woods. And as I found them, I bent over to pick them up. And when I went bent over to pick them up, guess what they did? They took off. So when they took off, I took off after them. And when they stopped, I reached over to pick them up again, and they took off again. And those three chickens and I went round and round that woods till the deodorant had completely worn off. The hairspray had been totally diluted. I looked like Moses with a mop on his head who had just come down off the mountain. Perspiration was filling my ears. Now, I am, I've had my devotions, prepared my message. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm going to preach on how to live in resurrection power. And the longer I chased those chickens, the angrier I got. I was ready to have fried baby chicken for Easter dinner. And if I could have gotten my hands on those chickens, I'd have killed him. If I could have gotten my hands on my wife who let the people give those chickens, I'd have killed her. If I could have gotten my hands on the people who gave the chickens, I would have killed them too frustrated. I've got to get my family to church. Could not get those chickens. Round and round we went, furious, frustrated. I've got to get to church. What do I do? Finally, I remember walking back to the car looking like a bedraggled Civil War veteran and said, honey, take the kids on to the church. I'm going to back up and start all over again. One of the things I've learned about frustration is sometimes it pays to punt. And so she went on to church, and what made it worse is they were all laughing at me in the car. That's really what does it in. I mean, the people you're making this sacrifice for are doing you in, sitting in an air-conditioned car laughing as this Baptist preacher filled with the Holy Spirit chases three chickens around the woods. When I gave up, I went back. I got the chickens back in their little pen. You know what I did? I went back in. I took a shower. I dressed again, started all over, clean shirt, fresh tie, fresh deodorant, fresh hairspray, all over again. Frustration. How often are we there? Now watch the six ways frustration is handled by some of God's heroes in the Word of God. First, move on to the next chapter and you will see one of David's great experiences. What's curious to me is that the narrator puts this right after David does everything right with Saul. He does everything wrong in the next chapter. Now, the first reaction to frustration that some people have is the reaction of anger and revenge. And in chapter 25, there it is, verse 2. There's a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and his servants are all out shearing the sheep in Carmel. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And I like this. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Gentlemen, if you can ever find that all in one, take it quickly if you've got the chance. Amen? Good understanding and a beautiful appearance. The story is a fascinating story. David guards the men while they're shearing Nabal's sheep. 
and then comes to Nabal and says, give us some food for protecting you. And Nabal says, go on your way. Who is, verse 10, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and give it to men I don't even know? And the young men went back and told David what Nabal had said. And David's reaction, he needed food. He's being hunted by the king. He's being tortured uh, by the frustration. He needs food for his men. And Nabal says, who is David? Who is he? He's nothing. And in verse 13, you see David's angry reaction. Full of revenge. Every man gird on his sword. Every man girded on his sword and about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies and David was going to kill Nabal. Now the rest of the story is simple. Abigail, the very smart and beautiful wife of, of Nabal, went out and met him and said, here's some, here's some food, here's some cheese, here's some raisins. Don't worry about it, David. Don't waste your life on my dumb husband. He is a skin flint, a cheat, doesn't have any sensitivity. This is the wife speaking. I mean, really, they needed a marriage improvement seminar. Amen? <laughs> and she said, Don't, why waste your life on this guy I'm married to? And she saved the day for David. How many times have you been in a frustrating situation and your response was to explode with anger? which leads to revenge. Now, if this is spiritual battle, and it is, God wants to do everything he can. I mean, Satan wants to do everything he can to keep God from getting David on the throne. If he can just ruin David at this stage of his life through anger and revenge, if David could bear innocent blood, Satan would be overjoyed. And you know he does that in your life? Now, there are two kinds of tempers that you and I have to deal with. And as I say this, every one of you in this church will think of one with one kind and one with the other. The first is the firecracker temper. Something sets him off and he goes, bang! Now, once the bang is over, no more bang, but it's over and it's bad. Sometimes it causes us to do some things. You know somebody, how many of you in the choir know somebody with a firecracker temper? How many admit to having one? Anybody? Now, the second kind of temper is a spontaneous combustion. It sits there and broods and broods and broods and broods and builds up and builds up and builds up until suddenly it ignites. How many of you are married to a brooder? Or you know a brooder in your family until it just blows up? But Satan uses this. It's one of his strongholds. Remember, the strongholds are of the mind. Frustration is in the mind. And if he can get you to explode in anger and take revenge, which is God's, he can derail you and keep you from God's very best. You have a choice when you're frustrated. You can respond God's way or you can respond to fulfill Satan's purpose and cause you to lose your witness, your testimony, or your spiritual some of you are brooding right now. You've lost the joy because you're brooding over something that's happened, a frustrating situation for which you have no answer. Secondly, another reaction to frustration is just giving up. Just giving up. Turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. It's a great example, I think, 
Matthew chapter 27. Judas has already betrayed Jesus. Do you remember this? He's already gone into the garden and identified him with a kiss. And in verse 3, Judas, Jesus' betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful. You know the tragic thing about Judas? He was remorseful but not repentant. There's a big difference in remorse and repentance, right? Big difference. He was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, and he made the statement, I have betrayed innocent blood. And now comes his frustration point. What is that to us? It's your problem you see to it, and he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and having no other answer, having given up because he had betrayed the Son of God, he went out into the field and hanged himself. He just simply gave up. Wait a minute. What if Judas had said that to Jesus? What if he'd come to Jesus and said, Oh, sir, oh, master, I am so sorry. I have betrayed innocent blood. He confessed to the wrong people. What would have happened if he'd gone back to the Savior himself? But see, he was caught in a trap. And unwilling to face reality, he gives up. And in the giving up, he departs and hangs himself. Now, there's a great difference between accepting the situation and giving up. Great difference. There are many situations for which you and I cannot do anything, right? I mean, I've learned there are some, in many, many ways that I, I cannot fix the situation. I used to think I could fix everything, but I resigned as king of the world. I've handed in my resignation papers. I can't solve every problem. Can you, Eddie, can you? But now there's a difference in accepting and giving up. Sometimes in your frustration, you, you accept the situation, make the most of what you have. But this is acquiescence, total acquiescence to the weakest side of us. John Budd and Rick Reed flew us up to Iowa for Al's father's funeral service week ago Friday. And on the way up, I had built the men up. Now, I have to tell you that uh, I warned them we're going to Iowa, and after the service is over, we're going to find us the best Midwest steakhouse with the best grain-fed beef, perfectly grilled, just a light crust on the outside, fresh onion rings, a filet mignon that is raised in Iowa, grain-fed, corn-fed. I said, it's going to knock your mouth out. You're not going to believe it when you taste it, and I'm buying. And everybody's mouth was waiting for this succulent Midwest Iowa steak. When we got to Des Moines, I thought, surely we can find one in Des Moines, right? Big city, capital city of Iowa. Then they said, but the burial is up about an hour and a half away. So John Budd says, well, why don't I just fly the airplane on up to that? There's a little 3,500-foot strip. So he takes the airplane up to, what was it? Where's that? Is, was it Clarion? Clarion, Iowa. I thought, oh, we'll find a steakhouse in Clarion. Everybody's waiting for this succulent Iowa steak. 
And after the service is over, we drive back to town. Now, in this town, there are three places to eat. There's Pizza Hut. There's Hardee's. And there's Subway. <laughs> and there ain't no steaks anywhere. Now, what do you do? Do you say, well, we're just going to drive until we find one? Now, there's one of the situations where you just accept the situation. And the best thing I could do for them was to get them a steak sub at Subway. The hamburgers from Hardee's came from North Carolina. The stuff to make the pizza at the Pizza Hut came from New York. I don't know where that, those steaks came from at the subway, but at least it was a reasonable facsimile. Not too reasonable, but it was a facsimile. Sometimes you have to accept the situation. There's nothing more you can do. But you don't give up to the worst inners that Satan can control, so he destroys us. Always remember, God's goal is to build you up and set you on a rock. Satan's goal is to destroy you. And he destroyed Judas when Judas gave up. And I often wonder, you lay theologians, think about it. What would have happened if Judas had come to Jesus and repented? But there's a third reaction we have to frustration. And it is denial. Denial. Look in Luke. Go over to the Gospel of Luke. And watch Peter in Luke chapter 22. Now you say, but pastor, how do you know that this is spiritual warfare? Now I want to show you something. I want you to draw a ring around this verse. When Jesus predicts Peter's denial of Christ, the Lord says in Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Did you know that what Satan did to Job is repeated over and over and over again? And I think the Lord lets us have this little verse in the New Testament so we understand Satan is not done with you yet. He is not through with you yet. Frustration where you come to the place where it seems you have no choices and nowhere to go and no way out. This is the warfare of Satan. Satan desired to have you, Peter. He desires to sift you as wheat. And the word sift is very clear. It's the idea of, of scrutinize. As you sift that wheat, you get the chaff out, and, and you find out what is true wheat and what is not wheat. And that's what Satan is doing in our lives. He's constantly trying to prove you poor or wrong or bad and God's trying to sift you for good and there's a spiritual battle going on and Jesus said Satan don't you recognize this don't you understand that when you get to that frustration point Jesus is saying it is Satan desiring to sift you and to destroy you by proving you bad proving you wrong just as he did Job and here it is again so that by the time you come to verse 54 in this chapter and this wasn't new to Peter. They arrested Jesus, led him, brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance. They had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard. Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, verse 56, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. He was with Jesus. But Peter denied Jesus, saying, 
woman, I do not know him. You have two forms of denial that I observe in life. Sometimes the denial is an act. How many of you wives have seen something developing in the home with your children and you couldn't get your husband to see it? And he lived in a state of denial. He denies the reality of the problem. That's his response to frustration. I don't know what to do with this 14-year-old. I don't know what to do with this 17-year-old. So I'll just deny there's a problem. And by the actions, we simply deny, we refuse to accept the reality. I think Peter showed this several times. You remember when Jesus first announced that he was going to die, the Son of Man must first suffer. And, and you remember what Peter said? Oh, no, Lord, never happened to you. I'll never let that happen. You'll never die, not as long as I'm around. That's denial. That's the action of denial, denying reality. But there's also the word of denial, wherein the frustration of the man in whom he had cashed or to whom he had given allegiance of his life, that man is now going to the cross. He is now condemned. And now Peter does more. He goes one step further than just the action of denial, the state of denial. He verbally denies that he even knew him. It's his reaction to a situation he could not control. You've been there. I've been there. And we deny him in different ways. And we deny reality in different ways. And it's one of Satan's strongholds. If I can't find a solution, rather than admit I don't know, I just deny. By my actions and by my words, I deny the reality of the situation. But you can know it is of the devil. You can know it is of the devil when the action takes you from Jesus, when the action divides you from what is right and holy and true and pure. We ought to acknowledge, however, that there are also three very healthy reactions to frustration. One of them is in our text. It's in David's text, the 1 Samuel 24 passage. I think it's a healthy reaction because when he has a chance to get even, he doesn't. When he has a chance to make things right, he doesn't. He passes it up. He takes the large, wide, good road, as it were. And he, he, he spares Saul's life. And he says in verse 15, Therefore let the judge, of 1 Samuel 24, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. My judgment, that verse right there, is a, a, a reaction of a godly man who is willing to wait on the Lord and put things in God's hands. He has lovingly confronted Saul. He did it out of love. He did it out of kindness. He has confronted him, and now he has to back off and simply wait. He wants to see. Let God be the judge. Let God work it out. It may be the Gamaliel solution, and you may not like it. You want a solution now. But back off. Wait and see. Let God judge between. Let God make the judgment. All right, Saul, if God's on your side, all right, Saul, if God's on my side, it will be revealed. And there are many, many times when we're in a frustrating situation, but that's all you can do. 
And that is, frankly, the best thing you can do. Give God time to do his work. How many times in the, in the great Psalms does David reflect this? For instance, go to Psalm 27. I want to show you how he does that there. But Psalm 27, every time I read this Psalm, I am impressed with it. He starts out the Psalm by saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And throughout he talks about his enemies. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me from my, uh, to the will of my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me. David felt like he was in a situation where he had no way out. This psalm may have been written right at this very time of 1 Samuel 24. But when he comes to the end of the psalm, notice what he says in verse 14. Read it carefully. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And that's what David did. The Lord judged between you and me. Let the Lord make the judgment. We'll see. I'll leave it in God's hands. I'll back away and put it in God's hands and let God be the judge. I don't always like that solution. Do you? I don't always care for that solution. I'm a go-go boy. I want it done now. Lord, solve it now. Lord, give me the answer now. And God says, back up, Mark. Just back up and wait on the Lord. I say, be of good courage. That's why I said, be of good courage. Let me encourage you while you are waiting on God. Many, many things you can't solve with a snap of the finger. You can't solve with a confrontation. You can't solve with anger and explosion. You can't solve with money. You can't solve. You have no, pro, no, no solution to the problem. You back up and you wait on the Lord. You lovingly confront. I want to give you, however, a, a second positive reaction. There's another thing we can do. It's one of my favorite stories. It's in the Gospel of Mark, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible. You know that. My favorite verse is Psalm 37, 37, Mark the perfect man. And behold the upright. Uh, but anyway, Mark, Mark chapter 2. Great story here in the life of Christ. He's had the opening day of his ministry in Capernaum. All the sick have heard what Jesus did. They gather, gather around Peter's house. And look at this. Verse 2. Immediately, Mark 2, 2. The many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. Not even near the door. <laughs> you ever been to homecoming in a little country church where they had so many people that couldn't all get inside? They gathered around the windows and they gathered around the door. When I was a boy, I always liked to gather around the door because the food was always set up in the front, front yard. <laughs> so if you were standing outside, you might have missed the service, but you made the food. You were always first in line. And that made it all worthwhile. Amen? And so verse 3 G, or verse, verse 2, Jesus preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. I like that. They couldn't get in the front door. There was a crowd. They couldn't get in the side. There was a crowd. They could not get to Jesus 
Frustrated, however, they couldn't call 911 to get an emergency helicopter to come take the man and drop him down the middle. But they found a solution and they took action. When you're frustrated, if there's any action you can take, always take that action first and do everything you've done. Now, what was the action they could take? Well, it was a rather, rather unique solution to the problem. But you go up on the roof, you take the tile off the roof, you make a hole in the roof, and if you can't get into this side, you can't get in that side, you can't get in the back side, you can't get in the front side, you go down the top. And that's what they did. They found a way. And the Bible says, when they had broken through. Now, this is traumatic. <laughs> Wouldn't it be something if we're sitting here in church one Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and all of a sudden right there, it's not rain, it's not water. The boards start coming out off the roof. And, 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 and the helicopter's over above, and it's setting this guy down. And he says, I didn't have any room in the parking lot. So I decided I'd come my way because I want God. What would you do? That Pretty dramatic, wouldn't it? Say, let the guy in. <laughs> That's what I'd say. You know what the rule of thumb for the action was? We must get this man to Jesus. That was the rule. How, whatever it takes, we must get this man to Jesus. And that's the rule of action for you in frustration. Flee to Jesus. When you're hurt, run to Jesus. When there's no answer, what would Jesus do? When there seems no solution, what does Christ say? Hurry to Jesus in your frustration. Get to the Savior. That's what these four men did with the paralytic. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Your sins are forgiven you. Some of the scribes said, Who does this son of man think he is? Blaspheming like this. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. Verse 7. And Jesus perceived that they were reasoning, said, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or rise, take up your bed and walk? The point is that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go your way to your house. And the man was healed and walked out of there. I'll guarantee the crowd made room for him to get out when they wouldn't make room for him to get in. <laughs> Amen. He'd been touched. Jesus had touched him. Now there was a way out. And once you get to Christ, there's always a way out of your frustration. I don't care whether it's financial. I don't care whether it's marital. I don't care whether it's domestic. I don't care whether it's vocational. Christ always has a way out. Take whatever action gets you closest to the heart and the mind and the soul and the work and the purpose and the will of Jesus. And there will always be a way out. Amen. But there's one last reaction we ought to look at. One of the most frustrating situations in all of the scripture has to be Moses' situation. I, I think it's probably a standard in my mind. This, this remains, this in Jehoshaphat going down to En Gedi where he had an ambush waiting for him. The scripture tells us that uh, in chapter 14 of the book of Exodus, there was a very unusual situation. 
when the Pharaoh finally let the children of Israel out of Egypt. Verse 5 says, It was told the king of Egypt that the people have fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this? We let Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariot ready, took 600 choice chariots. Verse 7, All the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. The Lord hardened his heart. He pursued the children of Israel. And, verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hiroth and before Baal-Zephon. Now, this is frustration. Four sides around the children of Israel. The sea is over here. Baal-Zephon's over here. The mountains, they can't escape through the mountains. Pihiroth is over here. Mountains, can't escape through the mountains. And the Egyptians are over here. They are boxed in. Just like on I-95, boxed in. Where do you go in your frustration? <laughs> you know, that, no answer to that. And they said, why did you, verse 12, why, did you, why didn't you just let us alone and serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. There is no way out. But wait a minute. God speaks to, to Moses and says in verse 16, why do you pray, or verse 15, why do you cry to me? This is not a time to pray. This is a time to obey. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And sometimes in your frustration, God will take you out the least likely way. But if God says do it, you better do it. If God says move, you better move. If God says jump, you jump. And God said start marching through the sea. Now I can just imagine all the elders, all the rulers of Israel. We're going to walk into the ocean? Yeah, that's our way out. That's suicide. Who are you, a Jim Jones? Well, they wouldn't have known about Jim Jones, but that's suicide, march into the water. But sometimes the solution to frustration is obedience by faith even when you don't understand. Let me obey you in this frustration. I am boxed in, dear Lord, but let me obey. And when I take a step of faith that I don't even understand, God does the most glorious supernatural things and makes a way out of the box. The box. There is always a way out. So you can lovingly confront and wait on the Lord. You can take whatever action you're aware of, or you can get a word from God that doesn't seem to make any sense, but you obey him because you know it is from God. And God raised up that sea, and they walked right out of the box. I'm here to make an announcement. In declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, I am telling you that there's nobody in this church who has a box that God doesn't have a way out for. I'm here to tell you, no matter how hard your marriage seems, you may feel you're in a box. I'm telling you, God has a way out. Confront and wait on the Lord. Take whatever action you're aware of or look for God to give you a specific action that may be preposterous from a human perspective and take that.
and move on by faith. But God has a way out. God has a way out for your job frustration. God has a way out when you're frustrated in your romantic life. God has a way out when you're financially frustrated. I'm telling you, God has no boxes, no mazes for which there is not an appropriate exit that gives God the glory and does good for you. And God's always doing two things, getting glory for himself and doing good for his children. There's a story in the life of Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York. Raised in an Italian family, they lived in a tenement, never saw many trees. His Italian daddy moved him out to a kind of a suburb on the edge of the tenements. And one thing they liked about their new house when he was a boy was they had a big, tall blue spruce about 65 feet high. And one day it had rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. And when the Cuomo family came home, the big, beautiful blue spruce, with so much rain, had toppled and fallen, and its nose had dipped into the asphalt street. So big, so tragic. And the boys cried, our spruce is gone, our tree is gone, our only tree. Mario said my daddy was a little Italian, about five foot six. Didn't weigh over 150 pounds after he'd eaten a lot of spaghetti. But he never, ever, ever allowed himself to give up. And with the rain pouring down, the boys crying over their lost tree, he said, go out to the back porch and get the rope. They got a rope. They tied it about two-thirds of the way up that tree. He put all the boys, and Daddy got on it himself, old man Cuomo. And they pulled and pulled and tugged on that tree until they set it back up. And the old man took a shovel in the rain till he was soaked, and he kept digging out those roots and kept enlarging that hole. And as he dug out around that tree and enlarged that hole, the, tr the tree kept sinking farther and farther down into the hole until it had settled back into the ground. Then he took the rope and he tied the tree around in all the ways, all the directions. And then he set some big rocks on the root stump right under the tree so it wouldn't tump over. And while the rains kept pouring, the boys stood there marveling at their blue spruce that had now been resurrected and re-erected and was standing straight. He said in the middle of one of his campaigns, he was ready to give up and he drove by that house where he lived as a boy. And there, growing still, was that blue spruce alive and doing well. Because his daddy never felt he was in a box from which there was not a way out. That's the child of God. In your frustrating situation, whatever is a box, I'm telling you, God's got a sea right beside it, a way out. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Now watch this. But God is what, class? Say it again. Faith. God is what? Come on. God is what? But God is faithful. 
and will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Here's what I like. But will with the temptation make a way, say the word, escape. Isn't that a good sounding word? Escape. Escape. What's your box? What is your box? Thank you for joining us for Share Life. We hope that today's message was an inspiration to you and your family. If you'd like to know more about the Christian life, call us at 910-765-5542 or write to us at Calvary Baptist Church, 5000 Country Club Road, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, 27104. If you'd like an audio cassette copy of today's message, send your request along with $4 to the same address. Be sure to include the tape number shown on your screen. 